Good afternoon. And it's my pleasure as Associate Dean for Ministry Studies to welcome you here on behalf of the Office of Ministry Studies to the annual Billings Preaching Contest, which was started in, or at least uh, the gift was started in 1904 by, wait for it, Mr. Billings. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a great uh, honor to to stand here actually and to welcome you all, to welcome field ed supervisors, uh, many of whom I've known for uh, 100 years or so, uh, to uh, former students uh, who are now among that group in many cases, to our students, faculty, and staff, and of course our contestants. Uh, we're delighted to uh, imagine what we're going to hear. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, admonished his seminarians when they were hearing sermons of their peers, never to judge them, never to think about whether or not it was a good sermon or a bad sermon or well exegeted. So you all have ballots, many of you. <laughs> uh, but his admonition still stands in this sense, even in a competition. What he encouraged them to do was to be sure to listen for the word of God in the sermon that came before him. You have the choice to, or chance today to hear uh, what will be excellent sermons that will be very difficult to judge in the very best sense of the way, but also the chance to hear the sacred that will uh, come in these moments uh, before us. And so welcome to this sacred time. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And it reads, When he re returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And having dug through it, they let down the mat upon which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak in this way? It is blasphemy, who but God alone can forgive sins? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you ask such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. 
And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The word of God for the people. In the book of Job, after Job's friends argue that Job must have done something to deserve his suffering. After all, deeds beget consequences in God's just world. Job counters, look, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. All of you are worthless physicians. If only you would keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Job sets in motion an argument and counter-argument. He and his friends get sophisticated in their claims. Their reasoning trades back and forth, winding tighter and tighter, but none of it gives Job any resolution to his problem. For all of their perfection, both Job and his friends' arguments disintegrate in the force of God's appearance. I foreground my delivery today in the story of Job because the information I will give is vital, but it is easily segmented to bolster arguments in which differences are, what are sharpened, in which difference is what is valued. Like Job, I feel I am operating in a kind of ever-heightening, ever-tightening dialectic, where I am equally blind, as Job and his friends are, to something essential. What do any of the arguments do to help Job endure? Job reminds me that pursuing a line of argument, of proclaiming what I think I know, is woefully inadequate. And yet, there seems to be no other way. This spring, I learned of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and its foundation for today's immigration policies. Many in our community are affected by immigration, but I'm not sure how many know about the Chinese exclusion. In two courses this term, I learned about abolition as the era of great intellectual ferment, a fertile soil out of which grew biblical studies on the prophets. I learned that the author who penned Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, had been a slaver before, before his conversion. Yet abolition also caused Chinese immigration to start abroad. The sudden labor shortage prompted Britain, France, and the US to import Chinese workers from the China's southern region. Chinese workers called coolies replaced slaves in mines, cotton, and sugar plantations. Chinamen were contrasted to blast through the rock to build the California Railroad. In some places, the Chinese were indentured. In other places, it was Paris slavery. The ship Lord Elgin left Amoy with 154 Chinese, 
It arrived in British Guiana 170 days later, locked in the reeking airless hold. Only 85 people were left alive. This start to Chinese migration eventually resulted in the Chinese exclusion in the United States. As coolies began to settle into urban and rural towns after the railroads were built, as they began to take up trade and farming, a depression in 1870 galvanized citizens to expel the Chinese. The Chinaman can live where stronger than he would starve. Give him fair play and the youngest home of the nations, the US, must in its early manhood meet the doom of Babylon, Nineveh, and Rome. Abolition rhetoric ironically bolstered reasoning for ejecting the Chinese. I oppose Chinese immigration not because the Chinaman sells his labor cheaply, but because his civilization is such as to enable him to sell his labor cheaply. They belong to a non-assimilative race, a people who come not to escape oppression and to seek a free government, but solely for the purpose of making money. They are thus, in every sense of the word, aliens. I want no accessions from any race or people who bring with them nothing except muscle, who do not aspire at least to be American citizens, who degrade labor by their servile habits, mere machines driven by their employers. Such a system of labor is semi-slavery. Enforcing the act laid the foundation for today's immigration. Government staff conducted raids and checks, interviewed and held people for indefinite periods. The rationale for identification, for documentation, the green card, the exclusion started this. Yet what is my information today worth? When I read these abolition era accounts, I am struck by how these writers thought they were making arguments on justice and on human rights. Their righteous indignation heats the page. How come people don't know about this? Shouldn't people take abolition seriously? I'm haunted by whether my indignation echoes theirs. How come people don't know about this? Shouldn't people take the exclusion seriously? Am I like Job's friend who bolsters himself by saying, see, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. What my lips speak, they speak sincerely. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Although this, sound, this friend sounds great, sounds good, he is in fact ineffectual in helping Job endure, and in fact completely wrong about the cause of Job's suffering. The immigration ban adversely affected people in our community. It dialed up feelings of tension, fear, imminent danger. Do I contribute to this cacophony, this maelstrom? How long does this feeling last? And how does it burn? Do I exhaust those who act? Do I help understanding Chinese immigrants? Does my speech paint to you an image of Chinese immigrants? What do you see?
Are we disenfranchised? Are we coolies? Are we a kind of sharp and sweet savor to be relished in the dish of protest? What does it do for people I care about when I speak publicly? What does it do for the long dead Chinaman? Does my speech validate me as a member of this community? In talks that differentiate black from white, am I yellow? Does today's speech give me a place to belong? Do I speak because there's a value attached to speaking? Is my wisdom to keep silent? I tell you vital information today, but at the same time, I am blind to the effects of my speech and suspicious of these prescribed choices into which I have placed Chinese immigrants, coolie, the oppressed, a minority. In thinking of you, my audience, I am woefully short on what knowledge does for understanding you. In the end, Job repents when God appears. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I argue that Job is able to break free of suffering's hold because of his face-to-face -face encounter. The argument about his suffering is never resolved. God never does tell Job that he was part of an experiment with the Satan but the tenderness of Job's speech. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. To me, this tenderness captures the essence of reciprocity, of compassion in relationship to another, an intimacy, a reorganization of priorities in light of what one realizes is beyond understanding. Isn't this what happens between people? I've got a bone to pick with you, but now that my eye sees you, I despise myself. What was so rational, so eloquent, just moments before it disintegrates. Michael Jackson writes, urging us to perpetually make and remake ourselves to others as if nothing were certain. Job remade himself. In relation to God, he laid aside certainty to the cause of his suffering. He put to rest arguments and knowledge that were all limited in some way. Similarly, Theodore Adorno in post-war Germany wrote, freedom would be not to choose between black and white, but to abjure such prescribed choices. Therefore, I too put forth this argument, this information on the exclusion, in hopes that it will lead to understanding beyond what I know. I have never preached before today, before this sermon. Today I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
I hope that doing this speech, I participate in the remaking of my relationship with you, with people I don't know, customs I am not familiar with, in order for something to emerge as I go forward. Millennial. I was born in 91, I've had a Facebook for nearly a third of my life, and I have favorite hashtags the way others might have favorite newspapers. Hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Stand with Planned Parenthood, hashtag Short Hair Don't Care. And as a millennial religious professional, it was in my nature to take notice when a particularly spiritual hashtag started showing up on Twitter. What hashtag? YOLO. YOLO is an abbreviation. It's an acronym. Y-O-L-O, standing for You Only Live Once. YOLO first appeared as a song lyric in Drake's 2011 single, The Motto, but as with many trends of this generation, it whip-cracked straight from popularity to cynical cultural backlash. And now it's become known as the battle cry of irresponsible young people making reckless decisions. In other words, I know I really shouldn't, but YOLO. I've heard it uncharitably called carpe diem for stupid people. But what if we just for a moment take YOLO seriously? You only live once. I called it a spiritual hashtag, and I meant it. Taken literally, YOLO is strangely profound, religious, even a little morbid. You only live once. It denies an afterlife, a resurrection, a second chance. What does it mean for this sentiment to be on the lips of a generation, ironically or not? Because the thing is, I believe in it. I believe in YOLO. Like my transcendentalist forebearers, I see divine truth all around us. And though it may be bellowed drunkenly out of passing cars on a Thursday night, I hear the truth of YOLO. I really do believe that you only live once, and there is nothing beyond this one lifespan, and that this has serious implications for how we live today. As a Unitarian Universalist and as a humanist, this concept of existence being temporary and precious and urgent has always resonated with me. And it's not often that a popular slang term comes around to so neatly encapsulate some of your most closely held religious beliefs. So what does it mean to believe that you only live once? What can YOLO be besides a catchy motto? Of course, YOLO can mean carpe diem, seize the day, live in the moment. Only living once means we only get one chance to be 25 or 35 or 65, and no one wants to look back and wish they'd done all the things they won't ever get a chance to do again. So go for it, YOLO. But on the other hand, in high anxiety moments, YOLO means that everything, everything must go exactly right. It means that we only have one shot at this, whatever this may be. 
and the million ways that life could go wrong loom over us, reminding us how narrow the margin for success can be. Only living once can be more suffocating than freeing. And what does it mean for those whose one shot at enjoying life is ruthlessly limited, not by anxiety, but by violence, prejudice, illness, or chance? YOLO as a life ethic is deeply unfair. There's a reason reincarnation and the afterlife are such valuable parts of religion. It can be, frankly, scary to believe in your heart of hearts that all experience is finite. It can be crushing to believe that the body you're in, the life you have, will be the only one you get. For those trapped under the weight of pain, or addiction, or despair, YOLO offers little comfort. And where is justice when we only live once? With no second life to punish us or reward us according to what we each truly deserve, where is justice? Because this life is demonstrably unjust. And the black and brown children of this generation are being brutally mistreated. The names we all hear on the news are the names of our peers. Trayvon Martin was a millennial, and so was Michael Brown, and Rikia Boyd, and Sandra Bland. And who knows now what those young men and women thought of the shared culture of our generation, of hashtags, and memes, and Twitter slang. But for those still crying out their names in Charlotte, in Ferguson, in Tulsa, and all over America, what does it mean for them to have only lived once? Without a karmic system or a final judgment to balance out our rewards and punishments once our lives are over, what do we have? The world is bleakly, undeniably full of examples of the guilty going free, and the worthy being robbed of all opportunity. If all we have is this one life, this undeniably and tragically unjust life, what then? Why would anyone choose to believe that you only live once in the face of this? The idea that those who are guilty of causing great harm to others may live their entire lives unrepentant and uncaring and face no consequence ever is a galling one. And when I think of it, I'm filled with a physical feeling of rage or sadness or something that clenches between my stomach and my heart. It's impossible to accept. And I know it's only a fraction of what's felt by those most directly affected by injustice. Yet those who have gathered in protest and solidarity these past years and months, yesterday and tomorrow, aren't crying out only in pain. We mourn, yes, mourn the loss, the injustice, the ignorance and hate, but we also demand. The cries from my home state of Missouri and from all over the country are for something to be done something to be changed now. And that is what YOLO can mean. It means that we only live once, and so we must create justice in this life. It means that reward and punishment are limited to what happens in this one lifetime, 
making them a human responsibility. It means that every single person allowed to do harm without being held accountable and every worthy individual abandoned to poverty or violence marks a cosmic failure on all our parts. If you only live once, these are problems that will not be righted except in this life. And inaction in any matter begins to look like the worst possible choice. YOLO doesn't offer comfort in the face of loss, but in this life, comfort is not always what we need most. A sense that time is limited, that seeing right done is something urgent and pressing, pushes us forward. Forward because it is the only direction to go. There are no do-overs. If all we have is what's in front of us, our one chance, when life is awful, the belief that there is nothing else can be terrible, but it can also be what we need to keep fighting. If this one life is all we're offered, we have to take it and do everything we can. And if we only live once, if we only live once, let it be in this world and let it be together. Amen. Not by my power, nor by my might, but by your spirit alone, O oh Lord. Amen. Good afternoon. A reading from Genesis, the 29th chapter, verses 31 through 35. When the Lord saw Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now, this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she ceased from bearing. For these brief moments, I'd like for us to focus on these three words, three terms rather, production, praise, and black girl magic. <laughs> In the late spring of 2013, the slogan, black girls are magic, was created by a woman named Kashawn Thompson. The intention of the slogan was to celebrate the brilliance personified in black women. In recent years, the shortened, catchier hashtag has been created for social media purposes. Hashtag black girl magic. Often, this hashtag is paired with pictures and selfies highlighting the accomplishments of black women, such as graduations, promotions, 
and even receiving awards. Equally dazzling pictures that employ hashtag black girl magic include simply the well-done hairstyle, makeup, or outfit. However, like many contemporary phrases, this hashtag is left undefined by Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> because it's not precisely defined, I have a number of questions about what hashtag black girl magic really means. For example, if there is a such thing as black girl magic, where's my magic wand? I didn't receive one at birth, and is it too late to get one? Do they sell them on Amazon, and do they come in purple? But more importantly, I wonder if black girl magic really exists. What does such magic even do? The narrative of Leah, Jacob's first wife, I think adds perspective to my question. Genesis 29 alludes to only two distinguishing markers between Leah and Rachel, her younger sister, and Jacob's second wife. Leah was older, and they differed in appearance. Leah possessed unusual eyes. They were considered tender, lovely, dull, or even weak. Rachel, on the other hand, was noted for her conventional beauty. Rachel was what Jacob considered to be lovely, and he loved Rachel, but he did not love Leah. Isn't it interesting how standards of femininity still dictate what is admirable and what is simply tolerated? Such standards are nothing new to, to the contemporary black woman even the most self-assured cannot escape the presence of dominant beauty ideology. White skin, straighter hair, lighter, brighter eyes. If black girl magic really exists, is blackness magical if the world says it's not beautiful? Despite Leia's lacking loveliness, the text says that Leia, unlike Rachel, was granted the ability to have children. Now, because of the covenant made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, fertility was of value to Jacob. Leah is still unloved, but is now valuable, useful even. Fertility is now her function. But still, after carrying three sons, Leah is not loved, just productive. In the crudest sense, a breeder. Through Leah's plight, one can recall Zoral Neale Hurston's description of black women in the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God. The nigger woman is the mule of the world, as far as I can see. Not quite human, not worthy of compassion, not attractive but useful. In a country where the percentage of black women who earn bachelor's degrees each year supersedes men and women of all other racial ethnic groups, black women have proven themselves worthy, productive laborers. However, 
daily social media posts from the Washington Metropolitan Police Department of missing and abducted black girls suggests that the inherent worth, the humanity of black women, is still up for debate. Value without compassion for human dignity, even in the American context, is bondage. What is especially notable about this story is that Leah names all four of her children. However, the names of three come from a place of longing for acceptance. With Reuben, surely now my husband will love me. With Simeon, I am hated, and God knows it. With Levi, now we, Jacob and I, will certainly be joined. It seems as if her conception, birthing, and naming places her on a figurative stage. She pulls a rabbit out of an empty hat, handkerchiefs out of her sleeves, and even cuts the man in the box in half and puts him back together. All that effort, act after act, is met with Jacob's deafened ears. Leah is left with no applause, no affirmation, no praise. That is until she conceives Judah, or praise, within herself. One of the greatest human abilities, I believe, is the ability to name things. Even from the Bible's creation narrative, Adam himself serves as a sort of co-creator with God naming every animal. However, the ability to name, like all other human abilities, can and have been used for less than creative purposes. However, Leah's fourth baby proves that in spite of the names heaped upon her, ugly, unloved, fertile, she can name something beautiful, even magical, not for others, but simply for herself. This time, because of Judah, I will praise the Lord. The focus switches from the desire to be loved to desire to love what or who has been there all the time. God, and there I say, through loving God, she develops a love for herself, that beloved is magic. What is interesting about the trend, hashtag black girl magic, is that it is created solely by and for black women. And once hashtag black magic starts trending on social media timelines, postings become continuously more fierce, more grand. What starts as one woman's graduation picture becomes posts of groups of black women who have earned their JDs, MDs, or PhDs. And what starts as one beautiful picture of coiled hair turns into mother-daughter duos, showing off their thick, luscious tresses. This is not done for affirmation or applause. It's not a labor of being. It's a labor of being, not a labor of doing, and that is the type of magic I seek after. Leia's magic 
is no different. For what starts as one baby from an unstable marriage creates the messianic lineage. What starts as Judah becomes Boaz, Jesse, David, Solomon, and one day the very personification of love, praise, and freedom, Jesus Christ himself. And he, yes he, is the freedom, the salvation, and even the magic I seek after. Amen. Amen. A reading from the lesbian AIDS activist and artist Zoe Leonard. I want a dyke for president. I want a person with AIDS for president, and I want a fag for vice president, and I want someone with no health insurance, and I want someone who grew up in a place where the earth is so saturated with toxic waste that they didn't have a choice about getting leukemia. I want a president that had an abortion at 16, and I want a candidate who isn't the lesser of two evils. I want a president who lost their last lover to AIDS, who still sees that in their eyes every time they lay down to rest, who held their lover in their arms and knew they were dying. I want a president with no air conditioning, a president who has stood online at the clinic, at the DMV, at the welfare office, and been unemployed and laid off and sexually harassed and gay-bashed and deported. I want someone who has spent the night in the tombs, had a cross burned on their lawn, and survived rape. I want someone who has been in love and been hurt, who respects sex, who's made mistakes and learned from them. I want a black woman for president. And I want someone with bad teeth, someone who has eaten hospital food, someone who cross-dresses and has done drugs and been to therapy. I want someone who has committed civil disobedience. And I want to know why this is not possible. I want to know why we started learning somewhere down the line that a president is always a clown, always a John and never a hooker, always a boss and never a worker, always a liar, always a thief, and never caught. Take up your YOLO, <laughs> celebrating, carrying our common human responsibility to cry out for something to change now. But let your labor be a labor of being, not of doing. Name something beautiful, magical, for yourself. Or shall we ask, is it my wisdom to stay silent? Amen. <laughs> <laughs>